Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, February 20th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, details on the proposed plans to address Mississippi's infrastructure. It takes ideas from Republicans. It takes ideas from Democrats. It takes ideas from the mayors. It also takes ideas from the Mississippi Economic Council. Then state congressional leaders agree something must happen to prevent more school shootings. We'll hear thoughts on whether or not gun control is the answer. And after a conversation from the StoryCorps mobile tour, find out what redlining is and how it's still dividing communities across the state and country. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Senate leaders are pushing a plan that could put more than a billion dollars into Mississippi's crumbling infrastructure. Republican Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves announced the proposal yesterday. He says the plan would provide the funds over the next five years for improvements to roads and bridges across the state without raising taxes. The bill that has been filed in the Mississippi Senate is entitled the Bridge Act. That's building roads, improving development, and growing the economy for our state. It's a critical piece of legislation. I will tell you it takes ideas from Republicans. It takes ideas from Democrats. It takes ideas from the mayors and the supervisors that we've spoken with over the years. It takes ideas from individual pieces of legislation that have been passed by the Mississippi House of Representatives over the last couple of years. Um, And that's something that we believe that if we're going to solve our transportation challenges, then it's going to take a collaborative effort. It also takes ideas from the Mississippi Economic Council and the study that they have put together over the years, and it's something that I think uh, we can all uh, be proud of. What it does not do is it doesn't raise taxes on anybody. We're going to provide for $240 million in immediate needs. Uh, We're also going to provide $600 million in long-term infrastructure for roads and bridges and dams and water and sewer and other things. And we're also going to provide for $200 million in emergency bridge repairs. Senate Bill 3046, or the Bridge Act, would divert money left over at the end of the budget year into a special fund up to $550 million. It would also divert $180 million to local bridge projects. Those funds would be distributed at the discretion of Republican Governor Phil Bryant. The rest of the money in Reeves' plan would be borrowed. Lieutenant Governor Reeves says the plan will be, a setup, will be set up to help position the state to comply with infrastructure plans from the Trump administration. Whether or not we wait or not, we have to provide flexibility 
to maximize our investment from the federal government. We have to provide flexibility to ensure that we can match federal funds so that we can maximize the drawdown from Washington. We need to provide maximum flexibility to allow our state to take advantage of everything that the Congress may pass, and we don't yet know exactly what they may pass. And that's why we create the Strategic Infrastructure Investment Fund, which would provide funding for long-term strategic infrastructure investments and to position our state to meet any federal matching requirements and any requirements related to infrastructure projects. Finance Chairman Republican Senator Joey Fillingane of Sumrall and Transportation Chairman Democratic Senator Willie Simmons of Cleveland helped shape the comprehensive proposal to meet critical needs. Senator Simmons says they'll work toward making progress. To be able to commit uh, a billion dollars over the next five years to our deteriorating infrastructure system and our bad bridge system in the state of Mississippi is going to mean a lot for economic development, commerce, as well as public safety going forward. So again, Governor, we want to thank you. Thanks, Senator Phil and Gain and all of those who've been a part of it. And we look forward to moving the process uh, and working to make it become reality. Scott Waller is president of the Mississippi Economic Council. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby infrastructure improvements are vitally important. My gut reaction is this. We're talking about a billion dollars over a five-year time frame. That's something that I think is extremely um, positive and extremely exciting to say, okay, we're, we're making some real progress if that happens. Again, the details, the bill was just dropped a few minutes ago, so I still have some time to spend working, looking at what it actually, how it breaks down. On the surface, just the fact that it focuses primarily on a major need, which is, is, is bridge repair and replacement, I think is, is vitally important. I think when you think about the fact that it's got some continuing dollars over the next five years to get us to that point of, of growth with uh, money going to transportation, I think that's extremely important. We're just excited about the chance to, uh, to get something rolling. I know what is also is uh, it has incorporated some of the elements of the, the House proposals that we've seen over the last couple of years. So I think you have those two factors going for it. It's, it's not necessarily an individual proposal, but it is something that's part of what their overall plan has been. So I think that the combination of the two things that they're looking at really gives us an opportunity to start to make true progress in addressing our road and bridge needs, as, as well as some dollars put aside for um, infrastructure, some of the stuff that's below the ground that a lot of cities across this state are struggling to, to deal with. I think that's an important element of it as well. As you know, President Trump recently announced his more than trillion-dollar national infrastructure plan some of those details are coming out. Right after he announced that plan, Governor Bryant said, maybe we should hold off on any legislation during this session. Maybe we'll have a special session later on to address those infrastructure needs once the federal plan details are, are more solid. Can we afford to wait any longer? Well, I think this approach of going ahead and putting some things in that have the flexibility and, and the ability to adjust uh, will actually better position us to do it sooner rather than later uh, because once this happens then everybody across the country is going to be trying to position themselves to get those those dollars so we need to be in position to to know where we are and what we can do so i i think that ideally going ahead and getting something started if the legislation passes and there needs to be adjustments or there needs to be additional dollars then i think that that would be uh 
a perfect time to, to take a look at that. So I think that what uh, you heard the lieutenant governor say is that this gives us that flexibility to to be able to adjust and, and take advantage of anything that might be coming down from the federal side uh, as we go forward. Scott, thanks for being on Mississippi Edition. We do appreciate your time. Thank you. The Senate Transportation Committee has already moved Senate Bill 3046 out of committee for the full Senate's consideration. Coming up, state congressional leaders agree something must happen to prevent more school shootings. We'll hear thoughts on whether or not gun control is the answer. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. In the wake of a Florida high school shooting, congressional leaders in Mississippi are joining the conversation about gun policies in America. MPB's Ashley Norwood reports. The shooting deaths of 17 people at a high school in Parkland, Florida, is prompting Mississippi lawmakers to discuss what needs to happen to put an end to such events. President Donald Trump has focused on mental health as a hint to potential violent behavior in his remarks about the recent shooting. Republican U.S. Senator Roger Wicker agrees. Here was a young man in Florida who had posted something that came to the attention of one of our fellow Mississippi citizens. We can look at the profile of someone who is a potential perpetrator and give that person the mental health treatment that they need, intervene in some way, or at least take them out of circulation as long as they're a danger. Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson says he supports gun control laws. In a statement released after the shooting, he said, quote, I am ready to take action to prevent such senseless gun violence. The question is, when will the Republicans who control the House join me? Wicker does not support stricter gun laws. I don't think taking away the rights of innocent, law-abiding citizens to have a semi-automatic weapon would help. It it hasn't been demonstrated to me that a, a higher level of gun control would help at all. It might make people, might make some advocates feel that we've done something right, but I don't think it would be the solution. The shooting in Florida is the 18th shooting on school grounds this year. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. Coming up, a conversation from the StoryCorps mobile tour. Then find out what redlining is and how it's still dividing communities across the state and country. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. Dave and Nancy Teal moved to Mississippi as newlyweds in 1965. Dave had been a grad student at Harvard and wanted to teach at Tougaloo College. They've lived here ever since. In this conversation from the StoryCorps mobile tour, Dave and Nancy talk about moving to Mississippi and about their reaction to the civil rights movement at the time. We would have some uncomfortable times, I would say, going into the community and maybe having to tell somebody that where our address was, especially when we lived on the Tougaloo campus or the Tougaloo community, because they would sort of looked at you like, what are you doing there? Are you a civil rights activist? You know, mm-hmm. are you going to stir up something? And there were times 
if you've seen Selma, you know about the diversity between, or not diversity isn't the right word, but the nonviolent plus the young, more active, angry people who that were sort of going back and forth about how they should manage the changes that were happening in civil rights. So there certainly were times that people, speakers came on campus that were very angry, very, you know, up front, up front about how... Mm-hmm. For example... Stokely Carmichael. Right. I, I Black can, power. Yeah, with Black power. That was certainly a very uncomfortable time. I had... One experience, when we went to take the test and get our driver's license from Mississippi, I got a a test which was all fill in the the blanks. And there was one question about where Highway Patrol had radio stations. And yeah, in what cities in the state? In what cities? In Nine the st- of them. <laughs> and, and I was supposed to write all those down. Well, I flunked that test. And when I got out of there, discovered that Dave had had a multiple choice test, which was considerably easier than what I was given. The second time I went back, I got the multiple choice test. Which was strange, considering I was the one at Tougaloo. They should have given me the tough one, huh? After Meredith integrated Ole Miss, things changed a good bit. And a lot of the students that might have come to Tougaloo then were more likely to go to Mississippi State or Ole Miss or Southern. I think I've heard you say that the quality of the students generally was not as good because more of them took advantage of those bigger that, schools. Uh, yeah, I guess and that cheaper probably schools. <laughs> generally was true, but as I think about those 75 students starting in, ni- in 1970. I worked in the admissions office. I was trained as a dietitian in Boston, but when I came here, what I did in Boston, I was not allowed to do here. I made rounds with doctors and wrote in charts in Boston, and in Jackson, I wasn't allowed to look in a patient's chart. You remember the time that you and somebody, I'm not even sure who, were staying in somebody's home at night in Madison County? Yeah, that was an interesting experience, I guess. I think it was the first semester that uh, we were in Mississippi. And at that time, there were a few families, especially a couple of families who lived out in the uh, countryside, sort of, who apparently were willing to send their young children, ages between, say, 6 and 10, to a school that was nearer than the school they otherwise would go to, but it was all white. And the question was, would their kids be safe? How would they be treated at the school? And, And so on. Two things about this I remember. One family had a, a, a son who was, and remember this was in 1965, this little boy w- went to the school where the class was otherwise all white, and the story I heard was that someone who was just really mean p- poured orange juice on his head and then proceeded to put sand on top of that. There were, I guess, worse things were feared might happen, and so one concern was that I guess they sometimes were referred to as night riders. Guys in cars after dark would uh, drive around and cause problems. One of these families in the the county just north of uh, where the college is, it was a family that sent their children to a school in this situation. I remember being there in that family's house with another Tougaloo faculty member after dark, and we were sitting on the floor in the living room, and there was a... a gun on the floor near us. And I've never shot a gun, and I didn't want to then, and I'm not (laughs) sure what I would have done. 
But we were there to listen for the sound of tires on the gravel driveway outside because we were afraid a Molotov cocktail would come through the window into the house. It never did. We never heard the car that we were afraid of, but that kind of thing did happen. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Support for MPB comes from Atmos Energy, with a reminder that hitting underground utility lines can knock out service or cause injury. To know what's below, you can call 811, two business days before starting to dig. More at atmosenergy.com slash call 811. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Some Mississippi applicants are being denied home loans at much higher rates than their counterparts. What's the difference between those approved and those denied, their race or ethnicity? The finding is from a national investigation on redlining, the practice of denying home loans to racial minorities to keep them out of certain neighborhoods. Three Mississippi cities were a part of the study by public radio program Reveal. Analysts found African-American borrowers in Gulfport, Biloxi, and Jackson are more likely to be denied loans than white borrowers with similar qualifications. Aaron Glantz is a senior reporter at Reveal's Center for Investigative Reporting. He tells MPB's Ezra Wall how redlining began. It's called redlining because back in the 1930s, representatives of the federal government of the United States of America drew lines on maps, and they colored certain neighborhoods red. And they warned banks not to lend in those neighborhoods because they were financially risky. And the language they used to describe those neighborhoods was just to describe that there were black people living there or there were immigrants living there. And those were the characteristics that made them financial, financially risky. And that's one of the reasons, for example, why black GIs coming back from World War II could not take advantage of the GI Bill, build wealth, and uh, enter the middle class so- in the same way that their white counterparts did. So back in those days, that language that you were talking about, was it, was it explicit language regarding race? It was explicit race? language. Yeah, back in the 30s, when segregation was legal and the civil rights movement had not yet happened, um, it was all written down, right? And uh, banks should not lend in these areas because there's Negroes here, because there's foreigners here. Um, that was the language that the government used uh, back in the 1930s. Um, Then, of course, in 1968, after uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Fair Housing Act, and all of that was supposed to become illegal. Unfortunately, here we are 50 years later, and the gap in home ownership between blacks and whites is greater than it was in the 1960s. And so there are some major issues that we've spotlighted in our investigation as to why that is. Uh, And it goes to the way that major and minor lending institutions are playing all across this country. One might suspect, and your research bears this out, that this happens quite a lot throughout the South, um, especially toward African-American borrowers. And uh, in the North, it happens as well toward Latino and other uh, borrowers. And uh, but how widespread is the practice? We analyzed 31 million mortgage records covering nearly every conventional loan application in 2015 and 2016. So over a two-year period, everyone in America who tried to get a mortgage, what happened? And we controlled for how much money people made and the neighborhood that they wanted to buy in 
and the amount of debt that they wanted to take on, all of which are issues that you think might determine whether or not a bank would make a loan. And we found that there were 61 cities, including two in Mississippi, Jackson and Biloxi, where even after we controlled for all of these other economic factors, that race was still likely to make uh, you more likely to be denied if you're African-American than white. So, for example, in uh, Gulfport and Biloxi, African-Americans were three times more likely to get turned down by a bank or a mortgage lender when they tried to buy a home, even if they made the same amount of money or trying to buy in the same neighborhood or were trying to take on the same amount of debt. And uh, in Jackson, they were about twice as likely to get turned down, uh, even if they had the same economic characteristics as a similarly situated uh, white borrower. And also, by the way, in Memphis, which I know the Memphis area kind of goes out into Mississippi, uh, we found the same trend there. Talk a little bit more about what lengths your reporting team went to to make sure that you're making apples to apples comparisons here. We did everything we could to make sure that we were comparing uh, people who were in the same sort of economic situation, because obviously the economic situation is what should be important when you try to buy a house. It's, it's a transaction that involves money. So under the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, uh, which is a law passed by Congress in 1975 that requires banks to be transparent about who they lend to, we were able to look at about nine different uh, social and economic factors, including the housing stock of a neighborhood, the ethnic breakdown of a neighborhood, uh, the amount of money that the borrower made, whether or not there was a co-applicant on the loan, the size of the loan itself. And we put all of that into something called a logistical regression analysis. And that's how we took the raw rate of loan denial towards African-Americans and whites, and we tried to make it so that we were comparing apples to apples across the racial groups. Did you break down, I, I know there have been specific lenders who have been cited, I think in, in Memphis, a Mississippi-based bank was uh, cited for uh, redlining and had some fines of, a few years ago. Did you look at specific lenders in, as part of this? We did. Um, most of our field reporting uh, was focused uh, in Philadelphia. We've taken all the data uh, that's available and we put it in this format where people can begin to explore it. Um, we've built this great tool that people can go to on our website, which is revealnews.org slash redlining. And there's actually interactive map uh, that folks can call up and they can put in their address and they can see what the lending pattern is in their neighborhood, who gets loans, who doesn't broken down by race. And if they become interested in how a particular lender is behaving in Biloxi or in um, Jackson, they can look that up too. Because obviously, you know, we spent a great deal of time with it, but we don't know your community as well as you do. And we're hoping that people can really dig in, dive in, and let us know what they find and gives us tips about way we can build on our investigation to find out, you know, what is really behind this number uh, in a city like Jackson or Biloxi. Is there a way for them to take this information and be able to judge for themselves whether they've been dismissed for some kind of legitimate reason, like, or whether there's some kind of racial prejudice at work? You know, it can be really difficult for the individual borrower, and that's one reason why we're looking at the data. One of the things that we found in our investigation is that the discrimination tends to happen not with extremely qualified people of color being turned down, but let's face it, most of us are not perfect. Maybe there's a cell phone bill that went to collection. Maybe there's some student loans that we need to take care of. 
those sorts of things we found tended to red flag lenders to people of color. Oftentimes, the lender would give a white borrower in that same situation the benefit of the doubt and try to find a way to move their application forward. And that's one of the things that we think is a contributing factor to the disparity. We've been speaking with Aaron Glantz, who's a senior reporter at Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Aaron, thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. The podcast for the full redlining report is called Kept Out and is available now online, or Mississippians can read the full white paper at revealnews.org slash redlining. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks at 10 o'clock in legal terms. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. If you missed part of the show today, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.